We are here in the first chapter of Ephesians, looking at verses 8 through 10, picking up where we began last week, entitled, uh, The Mystery of God's Will. The Mystery of God's Will. I enjoy history. You don't have to know me or be around me very long to, I think, recognize that about me. I really, really do enjoy history. And I enjoy it for so many reasons, but not the least of which is that it is his story. It is his story. That is, that it, that it is the working out of the providence of God in the, in the circumstances of life. And for those who look with biblically informed eyes of faith, you can see the hand of God everywhere you look. Everywhere. There's not a, there's not a part of his creation that doesn't bear his imprint and so as we look at history, as we, as we read and study and visit and so forth, we can see the hand of God in all of that. And that is incredibly encouraging. It is incredibly encouraging because what it means is, is this world is not random and this world is not out of control and this world is not uh, spinning, as it were, uh, without God's hand upon it or heading someplace that he does not intend for it to go. And that means confidence. On the bottom line, it is the confidence to live life, to to live life robustly in, in full assurance of faith that the events both nationally and internationally and the headlines are just incredible, aren't they? They, they come with increasing frequency. Uh, the whole world was hacked uh, earlier this weekend, and so it's just really interesting uh, to watch these sorts of things, but, but no fear. No fear in any of that because it all falls under the good hand of the providence of God. And that is true internationally, it is true nationally, and my friends, it is true personally. It is true at the very deepest level of your life. If you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, the sovereign creator of the universe is providentially working in your life through every single circumstance painful or joyous, he is at work. Romans 8.28 is so profound and true, right? God is causing all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. There is nothing wasted. Nothing wasted. And so this morning, as we pick up here in our study of the first chapter of Ephesians, and under the title, The Mystery of God's Will, we will realize, as we look here at verses 8 through 10, that there are six observations that I want to draw out for you. Six observations that come out of this really very small section regarding God's will that help us penetrate into the mystery. Into the mystery. So let me go ahead and read it for you as we begin to look again together. The end of verse 8, Paul says, In all wisdom and insight, he made, known, uh, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, that is in Christ, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. Six observations from these really two short verses regarding the mystery of God's will. 
And so to quickly summarize what we looked at last week, since we only got through one of them last week, it was simply this. The mystery of God's will was revealed to us in the gospel. That's the first observation. The mystery of God's will was revealed to us in the gospel. And we see it here in uh, verse 9. He made known to us. He made known to us the mystery of his will. In other words, we didn't figure it out on our own. God revealed it. God made it known to us. And Paul says it explicitly here, and it is implicit in the very term mystery itself. The biblical term mystery refers to that which is hidden and previously unknown and thus unintelligible to both man and the angelic realm until God in his own time and purposes decides to make it known, decides to make it known, to disclose it through revelation. Revelation, that is the the unveiling of himself. And so this mystery, uh, Paul says, is, uh, is made known by God to us. And mystery, we looked at this last week extensively, mystery, when that terminology is used in the Bible, it always refers, it's always associated in some way with Christ and his future kingdom. It is the king and his kingdom that is the core of the mystery of God that is spoken of and revealed progressively in the scriptures for us. And since it is a mystery, we can only know what we know as it is revealed. And thus the Bible reveals the mystery of God progressively from Genesis all the way through Revelation. Now, Paul says he made known to us this mystery, and he leads into it. He says the end of verse 8, you see it, in all wisdom and insight. In all wisdom and insight. The adjective all here means, means uh, every kind of. In every kind of wisdom and insight that, even, that possibly could exist, God makes known to us by revelation the mystery of his will. Wisdom, biblically, is, uh, is, the, is the being able to see into the heart of things, to know how things really are. That's what wisdom, biblically speaking, speaks of. And insight is the idea of discernment or understanding. And so Paul uses these terms here in every kind of wisdom and insight. And it's not two separate things. They're really both words speaking of the same idea, the idea of being able to penetrate to reality. To know things not as they appear, but as they really are. And so, Paul says, in every kind of of discernment and understanding that, that possibly exists, God made known to us the mystery of his will. Now, I feel like I rushed a little bit last week, and so I want to just slow down and and circle back around to something here. And and that is the textual question of, of who... Uh, whose wisdom and insight is, is Paul talking about? Is he referring here to the, to the wisdom and understanding that is, that is a reference to God? That is, is it in God's wisdom and insight he made known to us? Is this a, is this a characteristic of God that Paul's talking about here? That, uh, that God is exercising as he makes known the gospel. I mean, God knows how everything really is, right? And so, so is, he just, is he just in his knowledge of how the, how the world really is, is he then making known the gospel? Or is he referring to the, to the understanding, to the wisdom, to the discernment that becomes ours as the gospel is revealed to us? That's the question. And as you look at Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 10... 
you can see that uh, that suggests the, the former. That is, that it's the attribute of God being spoken of here. Where in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, pick it up in 9, says, uh, Paul says, To bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things, so that the manifest wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. So that sort of indicates that the, the wisdom and the understanding, the discernment, the, the, the reality is that which God possesses. And then in that attribute, he makes known his gospel. But over in chapter 1 and verse 17, there we see the suggestion that the, it is the wisdom and mystery that becomes ours as we receive the gospel and understand it. That what's Paul talking about? Verse, one, uh, verse 17 of chapter 1 It says uh, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Paul was praying there for the believers in Ephesus that that which is inherent in the gospel they might come to fully realize and utilize. So the question is, is the gospel a demonstration of God's wisdom or is it the source of our wisdom? I asked that that question last week and I said the answer is yes. Yes think. I think it's yes. It is both the source of our wisdom and the, the revealing or the expression of God's wisdom. So what do I mean? What's the point? Well, the point of all of that is, is if you want to grow wise, if you want to grow in wisdom, you want to grow in discernment and understanding. You want, you want to understand the world in which you live and what's going on in this world and, and even the events in your own life. What does it all mean? How does it all fit together? You immerse yourself in the source of the wisdom and understanding, which is the gospel. You, you immerse yourself in the gospel. As we master the gospel and are mastered by it, we become a person who is wise and understanding, one who can give an answer to anyone who who asks the reason of the hope that lies within us, as Peter says over in 2 Peter. So the mystery of God's will was revealed to us in the gospel. Second observation. The mystery of God's will is relished by God the Father. The mystery of God's will is relished by God the Father. Notice here in verse 9, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention. According to his kind intention. Eudokian is is the Greek word there, and and it means good pleasure or approval. It's the same word used up in verse 5, where it speaks of our predestination as to adoption as sons of God. There in verse 5, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. In in other words, according to his kind, uh, or to his approval, or to his good pleasure. In order, according to that which really pleased him, according to what pleased him, according to what he desired, according to what he delighted in. And it's the same thing down here in verse 11. 
God made known the mystery of his will, that is the gospel, uh, to us because he delights in it. This plan of God just tickles his fancy. It, It delights him. There is nothing that he likes better or more than this. And it is the timing as well that delights him. He not only delights in the, in the content of, of this mystery, but, he, but he, he relishes the revealing of this mystery to us through the gospel and then bringing it to pass all according to his timing. It's his plan. And because it's his plan, he likes it. And, and he likes to bring it to pass. It, it, it causes joy within him. God is thrilled by his plans and executing those plans in space and time. Now, the implications of this, beloved, are are simply this. Because the Father delights in this mystery, in this plan, he doesn't have any others. He has no other plan. This is it. This is the decree of God. It is his plan in which he delights because it is the most perfectly loving, just, gracious, merciful, awe-inspiring, grace-glorifying, and God-honoring plan imaginable. You get that? God is, is thrilled. He relishes this plan because it is the most perfectly loving just, gracious, merciful, awe-inspiring, grace-glorifying, and God-honoring plan imaginable. There, in other words, is no plan B. No plan B. This is not one among many possibilities, among many contingencies. This is it. This is it. And it thrills your heavenly Father to bring it to pass. I'm reminded when I think about this of what Peter says in Acts chapter 2. So I'll just direct you there to Acts chapter 2. We'll pick it up in verse Acts chapter 2 and verse 22, Peter preaching on Pentecost. He's addressing the nation that has been gathered there through the remnant. He says, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, This man, now that's the one I'm talking about, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Stop right there. There is no plan B. Jesus didn't just mess up somehow and get himself crucified. This was God's predetermined plan. In other words, this is the plan that God laid in place with the Son before the foundations of the world. And this is a plan that that includes God's prior love for the Son and all those who would become united to the Son through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This plan 
You nailed to a cross, this man you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Think about this. The most awful, terrible, horrific, evil, wicked event imaginable. The crucifixion of the very Son of God. That horrible, terrible, wicked event is the greatest good and glory and and Christ-honoring and God-glorifying and grace-dispatching event imaginable. For it is in this event that God brings about the glorification of his son and the redemption of his people. See, there is no plan B. And this is why the Father delights in it. Because it accomplishes all that his wisdom and understanding and and insight into the reality of how things are and how things should be is all packaged up here in the gospel. How often we look around and it it seems like stuff's out of control, wouldn't you think? It looks like the bad guys are winning. And in light of that, we, we have to be able to steady our hearts. We steady our hearts in wisdom and and insight by resting firmly in the assurance that what is working itself out is not a plan B, not a plan C. This is plan A, the one and the only, the plan in which the Father delights, the plan in which he relishes the display of his power and mercy and grace. The mystery of God's will was revealed to us in the gospel. The mystery of God's will is relished by God the Father. And third, the mystery of God's will revolves around Christ. The mystery of God's will revolves around Christ. Verse 9, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention which he purposed in him, which he purposed in him. In other words, whatever the Father is doing and whatever the Father will someday do in this world is inextricably bound up in the Son. It is bound up in the Son. In other words, all of the Father's plan revolves around the great messianic king the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the pivot point of history. And we even acknowledge that tangentially in our own culture because we divide world history into two uh, epochs, right? We have B.C., or sorry, now we say B.C.E., before Common Era. Well, what makes it the Common Era? Okay, Uh, semantics, my friends. It is B.C. before who? Christ. And then it is A.D., that is in the year of our Lord. And all of human 
history is divided into one or the other of these two epochs. So if you like BCE, fine. You still find yourself in one realm or the other. Everything revolves around the sun. It revolves around the sun. Jesus is the high point, and he is the high point of this eulogy as well. It is driving towards, if you were to, if you were to say, what is, the, what is the high point of, of verses 1 through 13 here? I would say the high point is found here in verses 9 and 10. That is, the, the revealing of the mystery of the Father is that, uh, that, he would, um, that, he, that, that he would bring together all things in Christ. That's the high point. Let me remind you. Let me remind you of what the scripture has to say. Jesus is the seed of the woman. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. He is the descendant of Adam through whom all the families of the earth will be blessed. Genesis 12 and verse 3. He is the greater son of David, whose dynasty, realm, and authority will endure forever, 2 Samuel 7, 16. He is the suffering servant upon whom the Lord caused the iniquity of us all to fall, Isaiah 53 and verse 6. He is the legal descendant of David and Adam and Abraham, and thus the rightful heir of Israel's throne, Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1. He is the resurrected one to whom all authority in heaven and earth has been given, and who commands his followers to go forth and to disciple the nations, Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. He is the cornerstone which the builders rejected, but has become the chief cornerstone of the temple made without hands, Acts 4.11, Ephesians 2.20, Mark 14.58. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, Colossians 1.15. He is the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, Colossians 2.3. He is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, Revelation 1.5. He is the rider of the white horse who judges in righteousness and wages war, whose eyes are a flame of fire, and upon whose head are many crowns, who strikes down the nations and rules them with a rod of iron, treading out the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. Revelation 19, 11 to 15. He is the one who sits on the great white throne, pure and holy, dispensing eternal judgment in the lake of fire to all whose names are not written in the book of life. Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15. And he is the one who testifies that he is coming, to which the redeemed for all ages respond with the apostle John. Amen. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Revelation 22 and 20. Everything revolves around him and his coming kingdom. As one writer says, and I quote, We are reminded here that God's purpose is and always has been focused on his Son, Jesus Christ. We worship God through Jesus Christ, not merely because Jesus helps us, or because we can relate to him, but because God's eternal purpose is centered on him and manifested through him. You are here this morning to worship. You are here to lift up Christ. And when we lift up Christ, as we lift up Christ, in the reading of the word, in prayer, in song, and in the preaching of the word, the Father is pleased. He's delighted. Because then our purposes begin to align with his. The mystery of God's will was revealed to us through the gospel. 
The mystery of God's will is relished by God the Father. The mystery of God's will revolves around Christ. Fourth, the mystery of God's will relates to the future kingdom of God. Notice what Paul says. That it was according to God the Father's kind intention which he purposed in him that is in the Son with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. Now that is a difficult expression. This word, administration, oikonomia in the Greek. We get a root word, oikos, which means house. But this word, uh, oikonomia, it, it carries with it the idea of management or stewardship. And from that, the, the activities of one who manages, who one is a steward, that is an administrator. What does an administrator do? An administrator arranges, he orders, he plans, he strategizes. An administration. Different translations try to, try to get at the idea here in different ways. So, for example, the NIV calls it uh, this, um, it says, which he purposed in him uh, to put into effect, it says. Or the ESV translates it as a plan for. That the Father has a plan for something, and, and the NASB here talks about it as an administration, trying to be, trying to be faithful to the, to the root Greek word here. But it's a reference to, to the Father's activity of administration. The Father is the subject here. He is the subject of the verbs. It is he who is carrying out the administration, as it says in verse 10, suitable to the fullness of the times. He's carrying out the plan suitable to the fullness of the times. Now, when it says fullness of the times, our minds probably go to Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4, right? Galatians 4 and verse 4, where we hear the same kind of of statement where, where Paul writes there that in the fullness of time, God brought forth his son, right? Born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those under the law. And so this expression, the fullness of time, here in, in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4, refers to the advent of Christ. What I want you to notice is that in Galatians 4, 4, it's in the singular. The fullness of time, it says in Galatians 4, 4. In other words, the the point in which the world was ripe, the time was ripe, the Father sent forth his Son into the world. But here, Paul, using the same kind of expression, he uses it in the plural. Notice this, suitable to the fullness of the times, plural. The times, in in, in other words, it's it's a reference to the, the fullness of the totality of all the times, all the epochs of human history. All of it pulled together. In other words, it's a, it's, a, it's a reference here to the unfolding of the successive historical periods through which God providentially has been working out his plan, administering, moving it towards its final consummation in the Messiah's kingdom. I know we keep going there, but we go there because it's the right place to go. But back to Daniel chapter 2. I want you to flip over there. I want you to see this. Daniel chapter 2 and verse 21. This, was, this is Nebuchadnezzar's dream that, that was a mystery revealed to Daniel by God. 
Right? You see it there in verse 19. And the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. And Daniel blessed the God of heaven. And he said, and look at verse 21. It is he that is the father who changes the times and the epochs. He, he removes kings and establishes kings. He changes the times and seasons. He removes kings. He establishes kings. In other words, that world empires come and world empires go. And leaders rise up and leaders fall again. And they come out of nowhere and they, and they raise to a point on the stage of human history. And then they are swept away again just as quickly. Because it is all the working out of the fullness of the times, these successive stages of this plan, this administration that the Father is working out in his sovereign and providential rule. We see the same idea here in Acts chapter 1. So I'll go ahead and flip you over to that too, and you can tie the two together. Acts chapter 1. Jesus has been walking the earth, as it were, following his resurrection for 40 days, verse 3 tells us. Speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God and presenting himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, verse 3 says. So after 40 days of teaching them concerning the kingdom of God, you would think the disciples would have a pretty good understanding of the kingdom of God. And notice the question they ask in verse 6. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? All right, we get the kingdom. We know what it is. And we know it's coming to Israel. But what we want to know is, is it now? And he said to them, you silly, foolish people, the kingdom of God is inside of you. It's, it's just a spiritual reality inside of you. You've completely misunderstood the Old Testament prophets who spoke about a coming day of peace and prosperity when the curse that has manifested itself on this, on this earth because of Adam's transgression will be reversed. When paradise lost will be paradise regained. You silly, silly people. It's, it's it's just this spiritual reality inside of you and, and you, and you enter the kingdom when the gospel, when you believe the gospel. He said that in verse 7, it is not for you to know. It is not for you to know the times or epochs or seasons which the Father has fixed by his own authority. In other words, the mystery is not being fully revealed to you. You've got it right. There is a coming physical, literal kingdom entered through a spiritual door of the new birth, to be sure. But it's not up to you to know exactly how the Father is drawing this all out. For it is he who establishes kings and removes kings. It is he who, who overrules and rules through the events of human history and the rise and fall of world empires. It 
mystery of the kingdom relates to the future kingdom of God. Fifth, the mystery of the kingdom radiates the glory of Christ. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is, thank you, Paul, in other words, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. We finally got to it. He finally defines the mission for us, the the, the mystery for us. He finally lets us in on what the plan is. What is God's plan in which he delights, in which he relishes, in which he has purposed to bring to pass, in which he, he rules in and over and through all of the events of human history? What is it? It is the summing up of all things in Christ, Paul says. It is the summing up of all things in Christ. Now what in the world does that mean? Well, we encounter here some, uh, some unique words <laughs> that, that um, this, this word translated here, summing up, it, it only appears one other place in the New Testament. It uh, appears by Paul, actually, over in Romans 13, 9, and there he, he speaks, when Paul uses the same language, the same word, where he talks about... Uh, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, summarizes all of the horizontal aspects of the Mosaic law. And that's actually what this, this Greek word, anakepha uh, laiao, how do you like that, huh? Phew. It means to, to sum up or to gather up like a speaker summarizing the main point of an argument. You, you know, you, you present an argument, at the end of it, you go, now, in summary, what I'm, what I'm trying to say, what it has taken me 45 minutes to say, I'll now say in 15 seconds. Right? That's what a good speaker does. They say something, they say it for 45 minutes more, and then they tell you it again at the end. And you wonder, what did I need the 45 minutes in the middle? It's just the way we do it. Hey, you get paid by the word, so, you know, you got to, <laughs> like an attorney, you, you got to make sure you get your full amount. The summing up, the the gathering up. Now the world, there's a root word here, um, kephale, which which is a reference to to one's head, physical head. Which appears in the New Testament and is used metaphorically to to have the idea of headship. Or or, um, to be the head of an organization, right? And so... As, as you look at various commentators, and, and we're going to see this in, in the English translations, and I, I take the time to do this because you're, you, you might be holding a different English translation on your lap from what I'm reading from, and you're thinking, mine doesn't say anything like what he's saying. So, so to try to sort this out a little bit for us, there are, there are some translations that, that sort of lean more heavily towards the, the root word idea of headship. And there are others that lean more towards the the idea of rhetorically gathering up an argument or summarizing something. So, for example, the NIV, when it speaks here, it says, with a view to administer, well, it doesn't say that, but suitable to the fullness of times, that is, to bring all things together under one head. That's how the NIV translates this. To bring all things together under one head. That's the Father's plan. The ESV says, to unite all things in him. 
to unite all things in him. And for the, for the, NAS, the NASB here, it, it carries more of the idea of the summarization. And so, as it says here, it's the summing up of all things in Christ. So which is right? Is it summing up or is it headship? Yes. Sure. I don't know that we can make that kind of a, of a hard and fast sort of decision. I think we can actually pull it together. It's, it's kind of this idea. What, what Paul seems to be saying here is that it is the Father's delight, which he has purposed in his Son, that is that it revolves around his Son, his mystery here, which is to, to administer the plan, his plan, suitable to the fullness of the times, that is the gathering up of all of the seasons and epochs of history, all the events, to, to bring them together and administer them as his plan. The plan of all creation which sets forth the lordship of Christ. So he is, he is, he is summarizing all things, right? If you want to think about world history, you can think of it as, as, as a long rhetorical speech that is going one place and the big idea, the main idea that summarizes all that has gone on in the world and all that will go on in the world is all summarized in Christ. Notice Paul says here, in the heavens and things on the earth. By the way, I think that that is a conscious reflection back to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the what? The heavens and the earth. So it's that pulling it all together. But I, but I think also the, the idea here of headship is also, you know, part of the word. And it's the idea that he's pulling it all together under that, that headship of Christ, under that, that lordship of Christ. So maybe we can say it this way. God the Father is administering his plan to gather together all creation under the lordship of Christ. That's where the world is going. That's where history is, is moving. You want to be on the right side of history? Right? You hear that all the time. Politicians say, oh, if you don't do this, you'll be on the wrong side of history. Which, by the way, is an incredibly arrogant statement to say. Because that presumes that you know, right, what's the right side of history. You mere mortal. Well done. But I can say with the confidence of the word of God. That if you want to be legitimately, truly, really on the right side of history, it is to lock your life into what God is doing. And what God is doing is he is is drawing all things together. He is pulling it all together in heaven and on earth under the very lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says in Romans 8.21 that the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of children of God when Christ returns to establish the kingdom that is very much a part of this ministry, of the mystery rather, it will be to, it will also unlock the creation. If you're a gardener, you should be looking forward to that day. Right? No more thorns and thistles, but an abundant earth. The poor you will always have with you, Jesus says, until the kingdom comes. And then there'll be no more poverty. 
No more hunger. No more oppression. No more war. No more wickedness. This idea of summing up everything, I think is a reference to that, to that final and decisive intervention of God. When he, when he deals with the problem of sin, rebellion, and all the attendant consequences. It is the coming of Messiah's kingdom in the person of the king. Now this mysterious plan, it, it, it's been unfolding for a long time, has it not? When the time was right, God sent forth his son into the world. And he broke Satan's back and he, and he conquered sin and death. And yet we still live with sin and death. Because the plan is not yet complete. It's not yet been finalized. The final consummation hasn't been come. Hasn't come. Paul speaks of such things. I won't turn you there for the sake of time, but you can check it on your own in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 24 to 26. We're Paul there speaking about this great messianic kingdom, which Jesus himself eventually hands over to his father. All of creation, all things in the heavens and on the earth, the physical and the, and the non-physical, the spiritual world, all of it brought together under the administration of Christ So that there is not a single solitary place in the entire universe where the glory of Christ does not radiate. Paul says it this way in Philippians chapter 2. Where he speaks there about the the humbling of Christ. Because Jesus humbled himself, verse 8, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in the heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Listen, when this plan finally is consummated, there will be nowhere, anywhere in this entire universe where the glory of Christ will not be fully on display. Fully on display. Jesus is the one who brings coherence to the universe. Jesus is the one who brings unity to the universe. Jesus is the one who unites knowledge and learning. Jesus is the one and the focal point toward which all things are driving. You want to be on the right side of history? You need to be reconciled to Christ. You need to be reconciled to Christ, the one for whom all history serves and and drives as that focal point. When you're on the right side of history by being united with Christ, you can begin to understand how the world actually works. Beloved, the universe presently is like a, a fractured and splintered glass vase that has been glued back together. And the cracks are evident. But in and through Christ, in and through Christ, God will make all things new. All things new. 
I don't have time to tease this out, but the implications of all of this are incredible. It, it moves through the realms of economics and politics and science and education and mathematics and English and child raising and marriage and, and international diplomacy and on and on it goes. This is the lordship of Jesus Christ over every aspect of creation. And we do well to think seriously about that. Sixth and finally, the mystery of God's will requires a right response from us. The mystery of God's will requires a right response from us. If, or better said, since Christ and his righteous rule is the focal point towards which the Father in his providence is sovereignly moving this universe, then what should be our response? What should be our response? If this is reality, and it is, if this is, if this is what's really working, what's really going on, not what our eyes see, but what is, then how do we respond to that? I would submit to you there are basically two choices. There are two choices. The first is this. We praise and we worship God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what Paul does here in Ephesians chapter 1, isn't it? This entire section is about lifting up the Son. It is about praising God the Father and His work through the Son. That's the first response. That's the logical response. The only other response, the only other response is repentance and faith. If you do not and cannot see your way to enter into Paul's praise and and glorifying the Father through the Son, then you need to repent. You need to repent. You need to change your direction. You need to, to, to begin thinking about the world and yourself and your life and where I'm going and what I'm doing differently because you're headed the wrong way. You are setting yourself in conflict with the God of the universe who has already made it clear where things are going. You could step out onto a freeway, go in the wrong direction, and you could say, I don't care. So what if all the cars are coming this way at high speed? I want to go that way. How long will you last? How long will you last? Get with the program, God's program. Turn from your 
foolish thinking. Align yourself rightly with what God is doing. May your heart and mind be filled and your lips express praise, all praise. Which will it be? You will make a choice this morning. Which will it be? Let's pray. Father, scriptures make very clear that you are at work accomplishing your purpose to glorify the Son and that you delight in it, you relish it. And so, Father, when we line ourselves, align ourselves with your purposes, we can, can sense your joy. We, we We have that peace within our own hearts. We have that confident assurance. I pray this morning, Father, for those who are here who are not aligned. Maybe they have placed their faith in Christ. They they are children of the living God, but they find themselves in a a backwater somewhere, off on on a side rail. Through various sinful and poor choices they've made, they actually find themselves sort of kicking against the goads, trying to, trying to unlock life, trying to make life work contrary to the way you've set it all up. Father, may you grant them, even in this moment, the repentance and faith they need to humble their heart confess their sin and to begin to return to the path of life. Brothers, brothers, Lord, who have yet to find the path of life, who are frustrated that life doesn't work for them. Some who try to anesthetize themselves to the pain of it all through various substances or, or they immerse themselves in activities entertainment, leisure, sexuality, work, even family, service to the community. Oh, the list is endless of cheap substitutes. Father, may you deliver them even now. May you help them catch a glimpse of of the exalted Christ to whom all of history is moving And may they humble their heart and believe. Trust him. I pray, Father, for our young people this morning here on a Mother's Day. Nothing would delight the heart of a mother more than to see her children walking in faith. Oh, Lord, may it be. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen and amen.